There are three words that you can always say to rehash a subject and that's Welcome back to the Career Therapy Podcast. I'm your host, Martin McGovern, and today we have Kristen Sherry joining us, the author of You've Got Gifts, a new book that is coming out today, or maybe it came out already by the time you're listening to this, and uh, the founder of UMAP. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I love career podcasts because it's my passion. Mine as well. I can't wait to get into it with you. So uh, I'm going to read your little intro here on LinkedIn because I always love to read our headlines and see what people have on their profile. So your headline says UMAP profile creator, best-selling author of UMAP, your team loves Mondays, dot, 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 right? Maximize 365, you've got gifts, people maximizer. It's hard to read the label when you're inside the jar. So (laughs) I love that intro. And uh, Kristen, I'm going to ask you the question that every job seeker dreads. Tell us about yourself. So I am a mother of four kids and wife to Xander. And I love helping people, maximizing people to fulfill their potential. So everything I've ever done is pretty much related to that in some way. Um, since I've been an entrepreneur. But before that, I actually started life as a software programmer, (laughs) sort of weird. Um, And I have career pivoted about six times. So I'm a serial pivoter (laughs) in my career. So I understand how to make career pivots, which led me to to say, well, why don't I just help people do that? So, uh, and I spend my way, my life three ways uh, professionally. I certify coaches to be UMAP coaches. I write books and I speak to people like you. I love it. <laughs> and I really appreciate you joining us today. So when when you talk about all these pivots, I, I think a lot of folks get into the career world through some sort of pivot, right? I, I don't mm-hmm. think, you know, I definitely wasn't sitting at home at the age of 10 going career coach. That's, that's the career path for me. Right. (laughs) And so I'm curious, you know, you started out in software, but what were some of those other pivots you had over the years? Even before software, I, I went to school for neurology to become a neurologist. And then I really didn't like calculus. (laughs) So do I really want to do all the way through medical school with all the math, maybe not. So I finished at like the pre-med stage. Plus I spoke to a neurologist and it was a no. Mm. Uh, And then I went into university systems working in executive MBA programs. And then I became a programmer. So I've probably done more than six pivots if you count everything. Yeah. And then I was in um, reporting and analytics after programming. And then I was in operations management. And then I was in learning and development. And then I became an executive coach while I was in learning and development. And then I left and was still an executive coach, but working for myself. And then I became a career coach instead of an executive coach. And then I became a primary writer. I write full-time now and train. I train coaches and write full-time. So yeah, that's more than six, but yeah, (laughs) big ones. (laughs) Why the shift from executive to career? What was the interest there for you? Oh, you picked up on that, didn't you? I love that question. I've never been asked why, um, because coaching (laughs) is coaching, right? No. Um, In fact, 
Most of the time you're coaching an executive, it's because they want to really blow out their career and move to the next level. So maybe they're a director and they want to eventually have a CEO path, for example, or it's <laughs> mandated by HR that they have a coach. So oh they're usually there. <laughs> yeah, they're usually there because they're career minded to go bigger or they're getting a lot of HR complaints. So I don't like working with people who don't want to be there. Mm. <laughs> That's yep. the one half. And there wasn't really a lot of fulfillment for me in helping people who already make six figures, just make deep, deep six figures or seven figures. They're really, it didn't really align with my values. Right. But I was volunteering, doing volunteer work with career coaches in a program called Crossroad Careers, which I'm now on their board of directors because I'm so passionate about their mission. But what I noticed is people who are at a crossroad in their career, it affects every area of their life. It affects their self-esteem and confidence. It affects their marriage, their finances, oftentimes if they find themselves unemployed. And when I helped those people, and there, there was a woman one time who lost her husband to cancer and she had two kids. One was about to go to college and one was in high school and would be going to college. And she all of a sudden didn't have her spouse's income. So how is she going to pay for her kids to go to college? And she said, I need to make $20,000 a year more. And I saw she had a lot of great transferable skills that she didn't see. And she was doing a job that I thought she could have done a lot more. And she ended up getting a new job, making 25,000 a year more. And that's the kind of thing that made me really light up helping that person who was really stressed and didn't feel like she was going to be able to even provide an education for her children now being able to do. And her daughter has now since graduated from college and is in the workforce. And I coached her no to way. help her land her job. Yeah. It's been very rewarding to help entire families. Now I don't coach anymore individually, but that's what got me into the career space. That's awesome. Yeah. It is those big moments. And I like that you called out that, you know, you come in for a job discussion and so many other things bubble up. And, and mm -hmm. I find that to be such an interesting part of, of coaching because, you know, I've, I've gotten on the phone with people and they've talked about suicide. I've gotten on the phone with people and they've talked about divorce. I've gotten on the phone with people and, and, you know, all the way down to the little things of just, I don't even know what I like, like, like that level of thing. And mm -hmm. so, you know, it really is fascinating to be in this coaching world. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I call it career therapy, because I feel like it's so much more than just yeah. your career at the end of the day. It's, it's one element of many. And, and obviously mm -hmm. there's only so much a coach can do. Um, but I'm curious when, when you're thinking about all the different aspects of what people need to need to consider when making a career change or going through a career change, what are the different aspects that you hope they pay attention to? You know, you've got your assessments and things like that. What are the things that you hope people start to realize as they go through these transitional moments? Well, there are so many things to consider. And I think that's why a career transition is stressful for people, but there are a few things that are critical. And the very first thing is what's important to you. So you hear people refer to that as your values, right? So you might get a, get a role that pays great money, but if you don't really care about money that much, I mean, money's important to pay the bills, but if you don't care that much, uh, you're going to regret 
a decision made on, well, this one paid the most money. So you need to know what's important to you. If you go into a role and meaningful work and making a difference in people's lives are in your top values, but you're plugging data into spreadsheets and you don't see how that affects another life, it's going to be really unfulfilling. Or if you're in a situation where a person violates your values, such as a manager or the leadership team or your peers that you're working with, even your direct reports, then that's going to create daily stress. So we can stay in a role a little longer doing some of the skills we don't love, but we can't stay places where our values are being violated for any length of time because it affects your health. You're definitely hitting on a few of the things that I, I early in my career, I noticed as well, where it's like that, that immediate connection to a person or that, that supervisor for sure is, has happened in the past. But, <laughs> we all have uh, that. <laughs> we, you got to go through some of these things. And I think it's, it's fascinating to look at how things grow over time too. Like, like how you phrased it, you know, you've had at least six pivots, right? Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes people think pivoting is bad. Like it makes them look, I don't know. Uh, like you're having some sort of an identity crisis or yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't really know who you are. And that idea of identity too. I think identity becomes such a, such a, it almost gets warped a little bit um, because a lot of times we think our career is our identity outside mm-hmm. of the values and, and things like that. What What are some of the, approaches that you take to helping people understand their identity at the end of the day? Well, your identity is, okay, think of an an iceberg, right? Think of a person like an iceberg. And what you see above the surface is really people's behavior. That's the only thing that you can really see about a person. But there are a lot of things below the surface, much more than the tip of the iceberg that really create this interesting cocktail that make us this one in 8 billion person and how that person out, how that behavior manifests. So underneath you have your life experiences, you have your critical thinking skills, you have your emotional intelligence, you have your values, your strengths and your personality. So all of those things, people are very nuanced and complicated. That's why I don't like people being reduced to INTJ or I'm a D or I'm an S or, you know, it's, it's really reductive to do that to people because really no one is like you or like me. We are truly unique. Even if, you know, you might have a smile that reminds me of my brother-in-law or uh, you might have a a similar sense of humor to my husband. And so there, there might be elements of a person that are similar to someone, you know, but in totality, holistically, no one is like us. And So that identity is a complex blend of all of these things. But I would say if you're trying to pick the one thing uh, that defines your identity, the easiest access point to knowing who you are is your values, knowing what's important to you. That's really the easiest access point because you're not your personality. You know, that's not who you are. But I am a person who values connection, who likes to have fun who wants autonomy in my work, who wants to make a difference in people's lives, who values being an expert and being generous. Like those are the types of things that define me and make me unique. Yeah. And, and it's, 
it's really interesting. And I, and I really want to get into this idea of, you know, personality assessments with you because you're, mm-hmm. you're so knowledgeable of it. And I, I've definitely got experience of taking lots of assessments and, and even recommending assessments to folks. And um, I, I sometimes, you know, have gone to the extreme with it where I remember this one year I, I took uh, the MBTI, I think I was using like 16 personalities or something. I took it like mm-hmm. a bunch of different times and tried to average the results to see what I really was. And then had my whole family <laughs> take it to figure out, you know, where the conflicts were and all those different things <laughs> and probably to a ridiculous degree. And, and it's funny because now as I have folks take it, I think it's interesting to not only see the parts that make their eyes light up like, oh yes, that speaks to me. But I'm even fascinated by the parts that they disagree with, um, yeah. where they're like, that's not me. And uh, there's there's multiple questions there. It's like, well, is it actually not you or is it denial? Or maybe it's actually not you and you tested differently yeah. today. And I wonder why that is, or maybe you disagree with- I can with speak me. to that if you're interested. Please do, jump in. Yeah, so it's interesting because a lot of- practitioners who do assessments can fall into the trap of thinking certain people deny their results because their personality explains why. So if they're cautious, well, of course you're denying your results because you, um, you're not going to commit to this because you're nervous of how this is going to be used against you. Of course you disagree because you're dominant. And so you're prone to, to be difficult. And so we start to, uh, oh, or well, you're you're an S, and those people are ten, tend to be indecisive. So of course you don't recognize, right? So we 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 use their personality against them. And I did the same thing early in my days. I've been using assessments uh, since before I was a coach because my mother's an executive coach, and she has been for 35 years. So I grew up being coached not parented interesting oh <laughs> Which I'm is so an interesting, curious that's that. a whole other podcast <laughs> so the first time I was ever uh, assessed was as a teenager and so I've had self-awareness for a long time didn't always uh, apply it as, as faithfully as I do now but I'm going down a rabbit hole um, so coming back to that people are very nuanced and complex, as I said. And so people will have variations from assessments because when you're looking at one assessment, there could be something else about them that creates the variation. So for example, using UMAP as an example, which looks at a person's strengths, it uses Clifton Finder. It looks at your values, which is an assessment UMAP created. It looks at your skills. We also created the skills inventory and your personality, we use the Holland for that. And so we use um, four elements. So people call things personality tests, but strengths, values, and skills are not personality. So personality tests only measure personality. So when you take a personality test that says, you tend to like to be isolated and work by yourself. And the, and the person says, that's, that's not true of me, even though it shows that they're this methodical, conscientious introvert on their personality test. The reason is they might have natural talents for relating with people. So they might have relater in StrengthsFinder, which means you, you're very genuine and can build connections with anyone. You might have includer where you love to bring people in and 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 uh, have all voices heard so personality isn't taking account the natural talent that someone has for relating with people 
The second thing is they might value connection with people. They might value empathy. And because they value it over their lifetime, their experiences, they've cultivated being empathetic or they've cultivated creating community. And so personality tests are part phenotype, which is the, the, the nurture element of the nature nurture debate and part genotype. And your genotype is your temperament that you inherit genetically from your biological mother or father. So personality tests don't take into account emotional intelligence, experience such as trauma and maturity. So when you have a dominance driven person that's 20 years old versus 50 years old, you could still have them be bossy because if the 50 year old doesn't have high emotional intelligence, they haven't modified their approach and behavior to the point where it becomes natural. So when I was young, I'm a dominant influencer in, in disc, in sights, colors, the animals, the birds, the dogs, whatever, whatever personality test you use but I am never bossy. I'm never dictatorial. I don't argue to be right. I did that when I was 25, you can bet your bottom dollar. But I learned over my lifetime that being right is insufficient to be effective. So I've modified my behavior to the point that now is natural for me. And that's why people balk sometimes at personality tests because it doesn't take into account maturity experience and emotional intelligence and your other elements or pillars of you that can create unusual behavior for that trait. That's so fascinating. I never thought about it in those terms. And I think when it comes to the maturity piece, you, you mentioned maturity and even trauma. Um, and it's interesting that a lot of people are taking these tests during traumatic times in their lives, right? Mm -hmm. During times where they feel like they don't have control and they're not in a very mature, steady, stable place. How do you feel like, how, how does maybe like work trauma play into how these tests might show up or, mm -hmm. or how we might be able to interpret those results? So I never recommend someone take an assessment while they're in a stressful state. They can be in adversity but not feel anxious or stressful in the moment they're taking the assessment. So they should take it when they're well rested, when they're feeling well. So when they're taking assessments, if they're in a stressful period, I had a woman who had just got out of a mental institution, a mental hospital. She had been admitted for having a breakdown and she, I was working with her when she, she got out of there and we were still able to get accurate results because I gave her direction to think about her entire work experience, not just this moment in time where she was having this really terrible, it was her work situation that gave her a breakdown, in fact. When someone is in a traumatic work situation, it's gonna affect things like confidence. I've met people who had supervisors who were trying to walk, like get them out the door, writing them up, even setting them up creating situations like deadlines they knew they wouldn't be able to meet so that they could write them up. And people I knew that were very confident actually became really self-doubting. And I'm still able to get good results because it's important to have a good coaching conversation with the person 
to think about feedback they get. What do people say about you in this situation when you're taking the assessment? What do you know to be true about you from your whole experiences, not just the situation you're in? So I coach them to think beyond the immediate situation so that they can have more data, if you will, to interpret. That's, yeah, it's it's very helpful to look beyond the immediate situation because there's one of the things that I'm trying to dig into with this podcast is the, you know, when you go on LinkedIn, you're not seeing people posting about their traumatic work events, right? You're not mm-hmm. seeing people talk about the boss that gaslit them for two years or something like that. And one of the reasons why I think it's fascinating to chat with folks like you or the therapists we've had on the show is because like, you know, there is this sort of quiet side of careers that I think a lot of folks go through, but they don't have places to talk about them or feel like other people have gone through those things as well. And, Mm -hmm. and it just like, you know, if you're in a position where you feel like you're the only one experiencing it, which happens a lot with the job search, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm the only one who's getting ghosted. I'm the only one who's getting whatever it might be. And then you hear someone else's story. It definitely, um, I don't know, makes it, it just kind of brings a little light into that, into that gray. Um, yeah, I get a lot of messages from people who don't want, who don't feel safe and comfortable, like you said, to post. What kind of stuff do you typically hear when you get those? So I used to write a lot of job seeker oriented posts and people would write to me and say, your post really spoke to me. I wanted to comment, but my boss monitors my LinkedIn activity. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They would say things like that. They would say, uh, I'm going, I'm going through that exact same situation, but yeah, there, a lot of people are afraid their employer will see it and they'll get retaliated against, or, you know, people have their work history. So if they tell a story, they're afraid people will go look and see what company and and figure out who they're talking about. And they're just really afraid to, to put that out there. So the gaslighting, the disrespect, um, that people are shown the micromanagement, uh, being given a bait and switch, told that they're going to do one thing and the job is completely something else. There's a lot of things that people go through in the workplace that causes them stress. And sometimes it's, you know, a boss that's stealing credit for their ideas. It, you just, there's just, it's an endless list of, of sins in the workplace. Yeah. And one of the things that I've been trying to work with folks on is how to build themselves up to even that power dynamic a little bit. Um, it, you know, there's this, this idea where it's like, you know, I, I'll say, Hey, here's a tool where you can find people's email addresses and email mm-hmm. them. And and people go that, no, I, I could never, or I'll be like, just go look at that person's LinkedIn profile, but that's creepy. I can't look at, I can't yeah. look at a public profile and and meanwhile, a company is like, I need to speak to four people that you've worked for. I need to know your background check. I need to, mm-hmm. uh, if you could tell me your shoe size and your social security, <laughs> it's like all this stuff. And I'm going to need you to open your mouth and let me look inside. Yeah. Right, yeah. Check your teeth, see if you're healthy. And like, these things are so f- like the power dynamic, I think is yes. so fascinating. And Mm -hmm. it's, you know, like I have a contract that I'm looking at right now and I'm looking through it and I'm like, wait, so you own every idea that I have? Like, it literally says like ideas. I'm like ideas, but like, how can, 
or words I say. It's like, but then how do I coach in the future? And like, we're, you know, talking with legal right now. And those are the things that I find, you know, it's, it's the standard contract, right? It's the standard mm-hmm. way that we do business. It's the X, Y, or Z. And, and I'm, I, I, I wonder how pervasive it is. Like, I'm not sure if I'm working with people at a certain point, like maybe entry level roles are a little bit worse. Oh, or like- this, is, this is huge. This is huge. And I'm so glad you broached this subject because I have a lot of experience with it. So I've always been treated differently in the workplace than my coworkers by the same manager. And it's because I don't take shit from people. Can I say that word? Yes, Sorry. please dig in that word. Dig in. <laughs> I'm not a big swearer, but that this topic really kind of gets, it gets me, me hot too. Yeah. yeah. Let's get into it. Mm-hmm. So I worked on a team and there was, there was territorial battles. There was gaslighting. There was stealing credit for ideas. There was a lot of bad business going on. And I looked around and I noticed all of the other functional leads were treated differently than I was in the interview. I set the stage that I don't do well in micromanagement environments. You know, I I will be very open to feedback. I always seek to become an expert in anything that I do. If I'm not doing things uh, to get the results uh, that you need, let's have conversations, but I will get very demotivated if I am micromanaged. I say that, well, when I used to work for people, I would say that in job interviews, when my manager would start micromanaging micromanaging me, I would say, I I don't do well with micromanagement and I'm going to get demotivated very quickly. Let's talk about what your concerns are so that you get the results from me you need, but we need to, we need to look at this dynamic between us. I I speak to people like they're my equal, even when they're my manager, I don't have this subordinate mentality. Uh, When I would find myself in the elevator with the president, I would talk to her like anyone else. And I pitched an idea once and it became a corporate initiative. Cool. Um, yeah, so that's that's that is a competency called comfort with higher management. Mm-hmm. And comfort with higher management, uh, when someone is competent in that, it's an indicator that you are promotable, if you will. When you look at people who are willing to to promote you, you have to have comfort with higher management. So going back to that situation with that manager, one of the things that this manager was famous for was giving sort of bogus feedback. <laughs> that wasn't actionable, that wasn't really fair in a lot of situations, but people just sort of sit there silently and take it. And one time I was given some pretty absurd feedback and I said, I just sat back and I said, that's, that's really interesting feedback. I've never been given that feedback before, but thank you for sharing it with me. Can you tell me what you would like to see me do differently in the future? And because it wasn't actionable, the stammering started and just sort of swiveling in the chair. And I just sat quiet and just maintained eye contact and comfort in in the chair. And the sputtering stopped and I heard, well, I don't think that there's anything you need to do differently. And I said, okay. (laughs) And that was the end of it. So I was never, ever given bogus feedback by that manager again, because... I wasn't offensive, but I took, I held my power in that situation. And I think that manager knew, okay, if I'm going to give just sort of random feedback in the future, I better be prepared to back it up. So it never came again. 
Meanwhile, other people on the team were getting this ridiculous feedback. And I'm like, well, why don't you, or they were given way too much work. And I would say, I'm happy to do that for you. Here are my current projects that I'm working on. Which one of these can I put on hold temporarily to take that for you? And I was told, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll give it to someone else. And someone who couldn't say no would take it. So I knew my boundaries. I know when to say no. And people sometimes sort of go into fight, flight, freeze mode when something happens to them. And so they don't say what they wanted to say. They can't calmly address it. So I would say you have to get comfortable. Keep yourself out of fight or flight as much as you can when someone's giving you feedback or doing something and sort of bring yourself to that rational place and sort of distance yourself from your emotions. That takes practice. But in the short term, people will say, ah, I missed my opportunity. You have never missed an opportunity. When you go back to a situation and you're one-on-one the next time, there are three words that you can always say to rehash a subject. And that's, I've been thinking. I've been thinking about the conversation that we had in my one-on-one last week with that feedback or with the, what you said to me when you told me whatever it was. And then you can say, I'm concerned about the tone of voice you used. I'm concerned about the language that you used. I'm concerned about the the dismissing of my ideas. I'm concerned about presenting the idea on my behalf without discussing that with me. What are you concerned about? I'm concerned about because, because I feel that this is going to negatively affect our working relationship because I feel that it gave permission to speak to me with that tone And that's not something that I intended to uh, promote or to sign off on. You know, you can, you can say things in a mature, calm, rational way, but then you end it with an offer of help. How can I help whatever? How can I help alleviate your concerns about how I'm spending my time? How can I alleviate your concerns about whatever? and put it back on them to give you the conditions of what they need from you. And it's really difficult to get mad at somebody when you end it with that humility. It really is a skill that is built. And I like the fact that you called that out because, you know, like you said, back when you were 25, maybe you did things a little differently. And and similarly, I'm, I'm the person that would get walked over, right? I was I would just sit there, take my 1% raise and the bottle of wine for Christmas, drink it on the train home and feel really terrible. And like these, these moments where it's like, okay, I love how you phrase that. You said, I've been thinking about, and, and it, the way you're talking about this reminds me a lot about uh, relationships too, even outside of work, like friendships and uh, romantic relationships and, and family relationships. Like these skills are so critical in the workplace and outside of the workplace. And so Mm -hmm. when folks put off learning these things, like, you know, the same thing goes for an interview, right? Oh, I'm, I've, I only interview once every six years or once every 10 years, because that's when my jobs change. Mm -hmm. But if we're not doing informational interviews in the meantime, if we're not learning how to talk about our skill set in the meantime, then it's of course going to be so much more stressful when that comes up versus um, I I remember hearing something recently about uh, how to raise your kids. I don't have any kids. So I'm call me out on my BS here, but uh, there there's this great, great thing where it's like, let them make 
bad financial decisions when all they're buying are comic books. So that yeah. when they're old, they don't make the bad financial decision on a mortgage or something like that. That's what I did. I gave my children wallets when they turned seven and I made them do all their own financial transactions. So they had to speak to waiters and waitresses in, in restaurants. I didn't order on their behalf. When my kids get to be about three, they have to order themselves to the waitress, make eye contact or waiter. They have to pay for their transactions at Target or Walmart or wherever we are and engage with the person. And then I would teach them through example, mom, can we have this? Mom, can we have that? And I would say that's an impulse buy. And we plan our spending because people who impulse buy will live in financial difficulty their entire life. I literally just said that to my seven-year-old in Target when she asked yes. me for something. So I do give guidance. I don't just let them fall, fall off the rails with their comic books. I give guidance and parameters and something to think about. But ultimately, the choice is theirs. And both of my sons, who are now 19 and 23, are very thoughtful in their financial uh, spending. And they both have savings accounts at that age. And they both have investment accounts. Like and in the is this market. that kind of like coaching parenting that you grew up with as well? Yes. My mother taught me to always have passive income strategies so I wouldn't have to work till like work till I die. And so I, I have pass, multiple passive income streams from my mother teaching me that in my youth. But I do want to, if I could share with you, I do want to share one more thing. Yes, please. About the, the, the pushing back. I want to tell you one more story. When I was managing a team of people at the time, I think I had four people on my team. I've had teams of various sizes, but at this point in time, I had four people on my team and I had top performers because I was good at hiring people because of what I, who I am. And I recognize potential in people because maximizer is my number one strength. So all of my people I hire have, have always been top performers even now. And so when it came time to do the quartile rankings for their bonuses, this is what reminded me your 1% bonus story. Uh, I had, I had one person in the first quartile and three in the second. And in my one-on-one, -on -one, my manager, um, she was an executive level. And she said, you have to put one in each quartile. And I said, well, that's not going to be consistent with the performance feedback that I've been giving them all year. And I had documentation of why I put them in the quartile rankings that I did and all of their successes listed. And I had weekly performance conversations. So I said to her that, and she, she was really flustered with me. And I know why they need that decision made because they have a pool of dollars. And if they have everybody put in the first, but I was not doing it to be a nice manager. I was afraid to put someone in the fourth quartile. I had data to support their rankings. And so when my manager said, you know, said, you're going to have to do that. Even after I gave my spiel, I said, I said, okay, um, but you're going to have to either have the conversations with them of why they're in those rankings or coach me on what to say. And it needs to be truthful. And they ended up staying, they stayed in the quartile rankings that they, uh, even though the company policy was you needed to have a balance in the four quartiles because I had the data prove it. So a lot of times we think people are going to say, no, my point is we think people are going to respond badly. I don't think she was thrilled about it, but she knew I was right. 
And I said, Hey, you know, whatever the company's going to do, they can override my decisions, but I can't have that conversation with them because it's not going to be the truth. You're really hitting on something that I think is so important, which is this ability to sit in your perspective without worrying. Mm -hmm. Like in, in therapy, it would be like, you're not in control of how someone else feels. You're just in control how you feel. And when I, when I hear this, it reminds me of uh, the ability to just sit in silence, which so many people are unable to do. Mm-hmm. And it causes so much anxiety. Uh, I was actually watching an interview with John Mulaney recently. He's a comedian. And he was like, something his dad told him when he was younger is, if, uh, if someone like calls you up and you're trying to negotiate something and they state the offer, just don't respond. And they'll ask, are you there? And you go, oh, yes, I'm here. And then they will immediately start backpedaling on whatever offer they gave you (laughs) and start conceding, even though you've said nothing. And I just Mm -hmm. like that, like tactic is so funny. And he told it in a really funny way. But it's, um, you know, when it comes to a, a contract, when it comes to a negotiation, when it comes to a manager conversation or even just an interview, like, I think folks are so worried about quote, getting it wrong or doing everything perfectly right. Like if you're going to give a a speech, you need to memorize every word. And, and one of the things I keep trying to encourage folks to do is get better at responding when things go wrong, rather than getting better at avoiding things that go Mm -hmm. wrong. And I'm curious from your perspective, because you've been an entrepreneur, you've been, you've had so many interesting projects over the years. How have you developed those, those skills, those, that ability to either in yourself or in others, be able to navigate, be able to sit in those hard moments, be able to kind of be comfortable in those uncomfortable situations? Well, first of all, it starts with belief. I believe that I'm a capable person. The second thing is I believe I am resilient and resourceful. So even if I'm in a difficult situation, I have confidence that I will be able to figure it out or I will be able to find someone else who will. So I don't really worry. I mean, 2018 was really challenging. I was building the UMAP certification programs, finishing writing the UMAP book, auditioning for a TEDx talk, and there was something else. Oh, and um, working with an attorney for the registered mark with the U.S. Patent Office for UMAP. Oh, wow. I had never applied for a patent. I had never written a book like UMAP. I had two previous books, but they were not as <laughs> robust, I suppose. And TEDx was new too. It was all these new things. And I f- literally felt like I was going to throw up every day for months. I was so outside of my, I was not in, in, you know, there's this zone right outside your comfort zone that they think that you should get into. It's the the zone of optimal. Mm -hmm. I I forget what it's called. It's optimal something. Uh, But when you get too far out of there, then it just becomes, you become a nervous, anxious shambles because you're so far out of your comfort zone. And that's where I was. But I knew that I was resourceful enough to figure things out or find people who could help me. And that's what I say to myself. Well, 
I don't know what I'm doing, or I don't know what's going on, or this is a terrible situation. I found myself in a really terrible situation that, that year as well, where one of the contributors to the book, who's not on the book. So it's none of the people, when you see the names on the back of the book, it's none of those people actually did take someone out mm. of the book. And I won't say why, cause I don't want to sure. disparage anybody on your program or at all. Um, doesn't align with my values but I had to remove them from the project. And so I had to hire a lawyer for that too. And that was a really sticky situation. But I just kept saying to myself, I'm resourceful enough to figure this out or find someone who will. And I cling to that phrase in my mind anytime I feel like I don't, I'm not gonna know how to do this or I'm not gonna know how to respond. Yeah, and then backing that up with action, I think, what you said earlier, your ability to modify your behavior. That's something for me that over the years I've, I've noticed in large ways and in small ways, I'm continually trying to prove to myself that the way I act today is only the way I act today because I haven't changed something. And like, mm-hmm. you know, oh, I don't, I, I'm not, I'm, it's not that I'm not someone who works out. It's that I haven't developed that behavior change. And consistently mm-hmm. thinking about things that way. Cause I think so many people are like, I'm an introvert. And then they hold on to that false identity or, or partial truth identity or whatever you want to call it and let it dictate so much of their life moving forward. Um, mm-hmm. Or I'm, you know, I'm artistic or not artistic is probably the bigger mm-hmm. one. And that dictates. I'm not creative. Yeah. Exactly. And so I love that you're kind of, your story shows that development as well. And, and, as you're helping other people do it um, in addition. And so um, I'd love to, to just kind of open the discussion now to some of the things that you're you know, doing today because you've got a new book launching. So I'd, I'd, if, you could, if you've got them in front of you, if you could pull up the oh, things that I you're working on and tell us a little bit I about do. it. I always have books spread around my office. So my, <laughs> current, my current book that just came out is this one. You've got gifts and essentially you've got gifts is the first pillar view map in child form. So it uncovers 10 natural talents in children from being an achiever to competitive, to being dependable, organized, confident, a relator. So there's all of these talents in this book and it helps children go through and build their own talent story to create this little sentence that they can be proud of. I am caring organized and dependable or whatever the three things they identify with, but it's told within a fun story with this fairy. And I'm really proud of the book because it's got differently abled children in it. It's got um, an indigenous little girl. It's got Arab and Indian kids and uh, Caucasian kids, redheads. (laughs) There's just everyone represented. So everyone can see themselves in it. Um, so that's one book, one of the series. So you've got values, you've got skills, and you've got personality are releasing every three months from now until the last book drops in November of next year. My second fun project for adults is this book, Maximize 365, A Year of Actionable Tips to Transform Your Life. One of the LinkedIn asked for this book, actually. People always say to me, I love your content because you always give something, take a takeaway that someone can practically do. So you'll notice when we were talking, I wouldn't say, well, just bring it up again. I I gave you examples of how, and I gave you some language. I give handles 
to people so that they can take it and pick it up and use it. And I always believe in this phrase that I always say that inspiration plus information plus application equals transformation. So this book is just 365 entries and each entry, for example, here's meditation. (laughs) It has a quote. It has a little blurb about meditation. And then here's an idea for action. And this book has everything in uh, finances, spirituality, career relationships, and health. And they're broken down. So like mental uh, and intellectual health, environmental health, physical health, social health. So it's, it's all forms of health and wellness. And I love the finances section because it has everything from how do you take a vacation on a budget to how do you save money on school supplies to how do you build wealth? And so it sounds easy enough, all 365 ideas because mm-hmm. I get I got to 100 and I'm like, wow, I have to come up with 265 <laughs> more. It was a lot of work. It was the most grueling book I've ever written. But all my beta readers read it and they said to me, which is an interesting statement, they said, I think this is your best book. And anybody who follows me knows I'm known for UMAP. So I thought, well, this will be interesting to see what ends up happening. But I think it's going to start being a book club book because everybody who's been reading advanced copies has been pulling people in to read it with them. They naturally gravitate to want to talk talk about like how to say no or bad bosses. There's an entry on everything that you can think of. <laughs> like That's pick a fantastic. topic and I'll tell you if it's in the book. <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh my gosh. All right. I can't wait to get my hands on it. And it, like, I'll send you a copy. Oh, Just send email it. Uh, email me your address. In fact, let's give uh, your audience a copy. Let's figure out a way in your show notes of how someone can win. Sure. And uh, and uh, you can like maybe if they write a review of your podcast and take a screenshot of it and post it online or something. And let's do that. It. Let's do that. So take a write a review, screenshot it, put it on LinkedIn, tagging both. Um, do you want to tag your profile or your business? They, they don't have to tag me. You can just okay. let me know who you chose. Okay. I don't want to make it hard. No worries. Tag, career th- <laughs> tag Martin or career therapy. We'll see both of them and uh, we'll, we'll pick a winner. So thank you so much. That's fantastic. I forgot to tell you, I always uh, offer a raffle signed book to your audience as a thank you for being on the podcast. So oh. it, came, it came up. <laughs> I love it. That's perfect. Um, and so for those of, for, for anyone else looking to find out more about the things you're doing or find your books, where should we point them? So myumap.com, M-Y-Y-O-U-M-A-P, not the letter U. (laughs) Um, Or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm the Kristen Sherry in North Carolina. And I will just do a plug. If you go on myumap.com under UMAP Kids, there is a place where you can, each book is listed. And if you go to You've Got Gifts, there's a donate button. You can send it to your local public library. You can send it to schools. I had six people do it through the website today. And a lot of people are, are donating the book to children's organizations or schools or libraries. So if you are community minded or have a, a philanthropic heart, you can um, purchase a book to send. Um, and I actually write who is, is sending it and who it's to in the dedication and then sign it. That's incredible. Well, thank you so much. This, this is a fantastic conversation. I think we hit on so many really 
just intriguing points, especially when it comes to bosses and work environments and, you know, standing up for yourself. Like that's like the biggest thing. And, um, and I'm just excited to get this out to people and and have them hear what you have to say. Can I give people a bonus idea takeaway? One more. Yeah, hit us. You have all the time in the world. If you are trying to do a career transition, think about every job you've ever had and just write down even the one thing that you liked about it and create a list of everything that you enjoyed and you were good at. And then you've essentially written your job description. So it'll help get you a little further down the path. I love it. And everyone, let us know how that went for you. Uh, find us online, send us your updates, You know, give us some shouts so we, we hear how that panned out. And Kristen, thank you so much for joining us today. It was my pleasure, Martin. I feel like I could talk to you for two more we hours. We seriously can. We ha- we definitely should do a follow-up on like parenting and stuff at some point. I'm so fascinated. <laughs> that would be fun. Thanks so much for stopping by this episode of the Career Therapy Podcast. It's been a pleasure having you. And if you're curious about what we do here at Career Therapy, head on over to www.careertherapy.com to see all of our coaching options, resources, and links to other things we got going on. If you would like to share your story on this podcast, something that you've gone through, a transition you've experienced in your career, whether it's getting a job after college or going through a layoff or getting back into the workforce after raising your family, we would love to hear from you. Head over to linkedin.com slash in slash Martin McGovern and shoot me a DM. Let me know what's going on, and I'd really like to share your story with the world. What we're trying to do here is really normalize the emotional side of the job search because we all go through it. We all have tough times in our careers, and sharing these stories really helps people feel less alone and feel more empowered to take their career back into their own hands and make something of it. So thank you again for stopping by. If you'd like to leave a like or a comment, subscribe or share, or leave us a review on iTunes, and I think maybe even Spotify, we'd really appreciate it. Best of luck to you in all of your career endeavors, and I'll see you on the next episode. Cheers.